context is very important, especially when we come to the Psalms. And before uh, we read through Psalm 13, I, I want to give you the background, the context of, of when it was composed. The Psalm was written by David, not King David. This was before he became king. But you'll remember in the, uh, the early days of the nation of Israel, they had three kings. There was Saul, and then David, and then David's son, Solomon. And after that, the kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and each had uh, numerous kings in those various kingdoms. So we tend to think about those first three. Saul started out uh, on the right track. He was a, a godly man, but probably the power and the authority that he had seemed to go to his head. And so after a period of time, he was no longer following the Lord and did a lot of foolish things. So God told his, his prophet, his judge, Samuel, I'm going to displace Saul and we're going to have another king. So Samuel went to the home where God directed him to the household of a man named Jesse and had several sons and David he anointed David to be the next king. Now this is unusual because Saul was still the king when David was anointed. Do you remember the story when David pretty much comes on the scene is when the Israelites and the Philistines, one of their enemy nations, were in a battle and David defeated Goliath. He went up to take food and supplies and information to his brothers and you know the story, so he defeats Goliath, which meant that the Philistines then were completely defeated by the Israelites. From that moment on, David becomes a national hero. They literally sang his praises. Well, the king, Saul, sees this, and he's very jealous. And what jealousy does, in any case, but in his case, turned to hatred, and he said, I'm going to see that David is killed. So he hatches a murderous plot against David. David has to flee with some other men into the, to the barren area, the wilderness, not like a desert, but he has to get away from towns and where Saul can find him. So he lives in caves and is continually traveling around while Saul remains king. What most people don't know is that that period of being a fugitive, though he was innocent, was 12 years. And we believe it was during those, that period, that 12-year period, that David wrote this psalm that he composed it. So it's, it's, only, it's rather short. It's six verses. It's three sections. There's a stanza with verses 1 and 2 and then three and four, and then five and six. So with the time we have today, I thought we'd just go through those. Let me read uh, Psalm 13 uh, again, though we just sang it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
There are times in the life of every Christian, whether you are a young Christian or whether you've been walking with Christ for many years, that, that you will lose all sense that God is with you. And your prayers will seem like they're bouncing off the ceiling, a steel ceiling, and, and that God is not there. And you know that He is, but you don't feel that. Well, that's what's described here, especially in verses 1 and 2. Notice the how longs. We typically ask how long, not to really ask a question, but to make a statement. How long until we get there? I don't really want to know exactly how long. I'm just saying I'm ready to be there. I'm ready for this trip to be over. How long until we eat? I'm hungry. How long until this class or the, the sir, uh, How long until it's over? So how long is typically not a question as much as it is a statement. And David is in prayer asking this, how long? Will you forget me forever? These are the words of a person who feels desperate. He feels abandoned. He feels God has forgotten him. You and I can feel this, this way. I, I read where, I can't remember who it was, he said the hardest thing about waiting is the waiting. <laughs> waiting is especially hard if you don't have much to do. And David and his men are waiting, and basically their day surrounds, uh, their day basically is surrounded about food acquisition, provisions, and keeping an eye out. Twelve years? So there isn't much to do. And the hours turned to days, it turned to weeks, it turned to months, and it dragged on. And what, what was the issue? And David is voicing here is that God's timetable is not his timetable. David's timetable and God's were not the same. Do you remember the name Watchman Nee? Some of you that maybe became Christians in college, we heard about Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was born in China, I think in 19, uh, 1909. He, he lived uh, about 100 years ago. He was a Chinese pastor, a church planter, and a writer. He was an author. All before the communist takeover um, in, in China. And his theology was, was very different from ours in a, in a number of areas, but he wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life, and I got that as a as a new Christian. I got Watchman Nee's The Normal Christian Life. And he tells this story, and I want to read it to you. And when he uses the term brothers, he's talking about Christian brothers, as our, you'll understand in a moment. He wrote, a group of us were swimming in a nearby river. One of my brothers, swimming out in deep water, got a cramp in his leg and was visibly struggling to stay afloat. He was in distress and was sinking. I quickly motioned to another brother who was an expert swimmer who was not far away from him, I motioned to him to hasten to the man's rescue. But to my astonishment, he made no move. Growing desperate, I yelled out, don't you see the man is drowning? And my brother who was sinking rapidly, frantically yelled out loud as he sank, but the expert swimmer still did not move. Calm and collected, he remained just where he was, apparently postponing this unwelcome task. Meanwhile, the drowning brother's voice grew fainter and his energy was depleted. And in my heart, I said, I hate that man. Why does he not save him from his struggle and respond to his calling? But when the man actually went under the surface with a few swift strokes, the ex expert swimmer was by his side and in no time had him safely ashore. Now, even though the situation he goes on was now over, I walked over and voiced my angry view to my brother. And I said to him, 
I have never seen anyone so selfish, and anyone love his life as much as you do. Think of the distress you would have saved your brother if you had considered his needs above your own. But the expert swimmer simply remarked, had I gone in earlier, he would have grabbed me so fast that we would have both gone under and drowned. A drowning man cannot be saved unless he ceases to be frantic and is utterly exhausted, and then he is able to be saved. Now the point Watchman Nee was making with that is that God often waits until we have exhausted our resources before he acts so that he gets all the glory. But the point for us today is your timetable is not God's timetable. And just because you and I may be in a hurry does not mean that God is in a hurry. Two more examples. If you go back to Genesis, much of the book of Genesis revolves around a young man named Joseph. You know the story, Joseph, because of favoritism by their father, his brothers hated him, they sell him into slavery. He's taken down at the age of 17 as a slave in Egypt. Shortly after he arrives there, he's accused of sexual assault, ends up in prison. He stays in either being a slave or in prison for 13 years from age 17 until age 30. Now the last two years of his imprisonment go this way. There's a cupbearer to the Pharaoh and he is thrown in jail. And Joseph can interpret dreams. And he basically tells the future about this cupbearer and says that you're going to be restored to Pharaoh's favor. And when that happens, remember me to him so that I can be released from this place. Well, it, precisely what Joseph said was going to happen did happen. The cupbearer is restored to his position with Pharaoh, but he forgets about Joseph. <laughs> oh, oh, just, I'm sorry, just slipped my mind. For two years, for two years, Joseph remains there in prison. And then he's ultimately released, and you know the rest of the story, of the, how he rose to prominence. Two years. And we can only imagine Joseph was thinking, how long? How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing? Take the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived. Now, Paul, we read much about him in the book of Acts. He wanted to take the gospel and go to Rome, the most important city in the world at that time. And then from Rome, he planned to go to Spain to preach the gospel there. How did God get Paul to Rome? Well, he had him imprisoned on a false charge, just like Joseph, false charge. And the governor in Caesarea heard his case and knew that he was innocent. But, and imagine this, because of politics, he kept him in custody. He knew Paul was innocent, but Acts 24 said, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison for two more years two years. God's great missionary hemmed up in jail. People are dying. They're lost. They need to hear about Christ. What was God doing? We can only imagine Paul was asking that question because in both cases with Joseph and with Paul and going back to David, it seemed to be, the waiting seemed to be for nothing. It appeared, it appeared to be a complete waste of time. That's what David was going through. 
In fact, in verse 2, and believe me, I'm going to go much faster in just a moment. In verse 2, he says, my enemy seems to be winning. He's exalting over me. Saul was still the king. Saul was enjoying the comforts of the palace. David sleeping in caves. Saul was the bad guy. He's not seeking God. David was. Saul was trying to kill David's life without cause. He's completely innocent. Even though David had spared Saul's life when God, in a sense, circumstantially had delivered him up to David's hands. Didn't God know what was happening? Sooner or later, you will be here. You will be in that position. Maybe you are right now. Maybe you were years ago. Maybe you will be a year from now. So what do you do? What's the answer? Well, let's move on. We're going to see it. Here's the answer. He prays for help in verses 3 and 4. And look at the request he mentions. Consider, in other words, look on me. Take notice of me. This is the way I feel, Lord. All of us live with what theologians call this quorum deo, before the face of God, that God created you and me fundamentally to have a relationship with Him. Our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, had a perfect relationship with God. They literally walked and talked with Him in the garden. He gave them one prohibition, which they broke. They committed a crime against God. And as a result of that, that fellowship with God was broken. They experienced spiritual death. And God punished them. But at the same time he pronounced punishment, he said, I will send a redeemer, a redeemer who will restore things. So throughout the Old Testament, we have over 700 prophecies about this redeemer who would come. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He always obeyed God in every respect. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified on a Roman cross And God took my sins, my disobedience, my breaking his law, and put it on Jesus, and he paid for it there. Then he died physically. He died spiritually on the cross. Three days later, he physically rose from the grave where he ascended into the the heavens, to the right hand of God the Father, where he is right now interceding for us. And because of that, we can live quorum Deo, before the face of God, as many have said, we play for an audience of one, and that's God. And that's what David was saying, I want to sense that you see me, you consider me, and answer me, he says in verse 3. Light up my eyes, he goes on. He needed wisdom. He needed wisdom. How does God give wisdom? He tells us to ask of him, as James says. If you lack wisdom, and he's saying that in the context of trials, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We often pray, Lord, relieve me of this trial, but our first prayer really ought to be, give me wisdom in this trial. About 15 or 20 years ago, I preached a series of sermons on prayer. You don't remember them. I don't remember them, except I have the notes from those sermons. And I was thinking about a diagram that was used in those sermons that I couldn't remember where I found it. So I went through a file file cabinet. For those of you that are younger, ask your parents what a filing cabinet is. But I I went and I found found the diagram. Here was the diagram that has helped me understand the purpose of prayer probably more than any other such thing I've seen. Imagine, if you will, the diagram, uh, a, a big room up here. Uh, a big like storehouse and in that storehouse are God's resources the resources 
And there's a conduit going up to it, and that is prayer. And then down here is me and uh, a big reservoir, and that reservoir, and that is my wisdom. So many of us view prayer as, well, I, in my wisdom, I think I need this. So I'm going to pray about it. God's got the resources. Lord, I need this. I need help. I need deliverance. I need finances. I need healing. And now I'm going to pray those down to my need. Can you relate to that? The other part of the diagram is more the correct view. And that is, imagine also resources, and that's God's wisdom. And then there's a conduit coming down, and here, down here, is my need. So in prayer, rather than saying, I just want to appeal to God's resources, I want to pray, I've got a great need. Lord, give me wisdom, give me wisdom, give me wisdom. So often God answers your prayer through praying. That you pray and you arise after prayer and you see things differently. And nothing's changed except inside of you. So David is praying here, answer me, light my eyes. He doesn't was, wasn't just praying for deliverance. He, he's praying that God would be honored. Now the last two verses. His trust is recovered. So in these six verses, we move from how long, how long, how long, he feels abandoned, to prayer, Lord, see me, I'm before your face, enlighten my eyes, give me wisdom, and now look at how solid his stance is. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What a contrast to verse 1. His trust, is um, his trust is recovered. And his affirmation of faith. Again, what has changed? Has Saul, has he gotten word Saul's dead? Has Saul changed his plan? Have uh, the people risen up and said, we want David to be our king? No. From verse 1 to verse 6, not one circumstance has changed. What's changed is David. David has changed. His attitude has changed. It's been an inward change, and he has a calm assurance when he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He chose to interpret his circumstances by the love of God rather than trying to interpret the love of God by his circumstances. If y'all are, if, if, if you're getting tired of listening, we're almost at the end. I want you to hear that one sentence. He chose to interpret his circumstances by the love of God rather than interpreting the love of God by his circumstances. He could have said, Lord, you don't love me. Look, we're living in a cave. You don't love me. The king's out to kill me. No, he interpreted his circumstances by the love of God. So we move in this psalm from discouragement, even despair, feeling abandonment, to encouragement and knowing God is with him. Discouragement does not come from God. And often when we're tempted to be discouraged, we don't view it as a temptation. We don't view it with caution. But it's not from God. I close with this. John Lawrence, when he wrote Down to Earth, 
he wrote this little parable about the devil. And I'll read it to you if you don't mind. Y'all are smart enough. They told us never read to people in sermons, but hey, sometimes it's better to read the primary source, right? John Lawrence wrote, It was advertised that the devil was going to put his tools up for sale. On the date of the sale, the tools were placed for public inspection, each one being marked with its sale price. And there was a treacherous lot of implements. Hatred, envy, jealousy, doubt, lying, and so on. But laid apart from the rest of the pile was a harmless-looking tool, well-worn and priced extremely high. The name of that tool, asked one of the purchasers, what is the name of that tool? Oh, said the devil, that's discouragement. Well, why have you priced it so high? And the devil said, because it's more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get inside a person's heart with that one when I cannot get near him with the other tools. And now once I get inside, I can make him do pretty much what I choose. It's a badly worn tool because I use it on almost everyone since few people know it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was so high that he never sold it. It's still his major tool, and he still uses it on God's people today. Let's pray together. Our Father, may we interpret our circumstances through your love rather than trying to determine your love for us, your promises made to us based on our circumstances. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.